Hello and welcome to School Safety News. I'm Amanda Klinger. And I'm Dr. Amy Klinger. And we are with the Educator Schools Safety Network. We are a national nonprofit organization and we provide school safety training and resources and technical assistance to schools throughout the United States and Canada. We have another podcast, the School Safety Free Period, where we're a little fast and loose and we have a quite a few laughs, but this is our serious podcast where we talk about what's happening in the world of school safety, things that you need to be aware of as an educator or as an administrator or a parent or community member, and sort of some of the work that can be done and how we're all working to increase safety in schools. So uh, this week we've had a pretty tough week for school safety. Yeah, we want to take a look at kind of a confluence of things happening where we have had two shootings in two days in schools here. And and while tragically school shootings are frequent, typically you don't see them back to back like this. Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting to take a look at the commonalities uh, between these two events that happened not terribly close together, um, but also then to look at, in many ways, these shootings are textbook. And there are lessons to be learned from that. And then there's a few things about them that are a little bit different that um, we, we can explore. So we'll kind of start chronologically. And, and it's important to note that these events that happened were not the first, I think you sort of alluded to this, were not the first school shootings of this school year, but the shooting specifically in Kentucky is the shooting that's been the most serious this school year. It has the, the fatalities. most fatalities and, and most casualties. In addition to the fact that it is literally the day after um, another shooting that happened in a school, it is it is sort of the most serious that we've had this school year. So I want to take a minute and kind of compare the event in Italy, Texas, which was on Monday, with the Monday, one, January 22nd. With the one that occurred in Benton, Kentucky, on Tuesday. And it's kind of interesting to see some of the, the, the sort of textbook elements that we tend to be able to predict when we're looking at these two things. So, And what do you, and maybe we should say what we mean by textbook. Well, by textbook, we mean not surprising. A lot of the details and a lot of the information that's emerging. Yeah, that if, if, if you go back and look at you know, school shootings in the last 20 years, mm-hmm. many of them have very similar attributes. And so we'll kind of start talking about those. Um, both of these events took place in small towns that are described in the media as close-knit. Mm-hmm. Again, we can go back to, you know, Newtown and Sandy Hook and far mm-hmm. beyond that to see um, a lot of these events happening in small towns where you almost universally hear, we never thought that was going to happen here. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the first big takeaway. Um, there is no one that is immune from the potential for these sort of events to occur. And actually they tend to happen more frequently in places that are um, smaller, sort of n- not high crime areas per se, or whatever stereotypes you want to put in place in terms of inner city or you know poverty stricken areas, they tend to be in places where the individuals themselves, the community members say, we never thought something like that would happen here. Which I think is interesting, especially in the one in Kentucky, because my understanding is that that place was about 40 minutes away from Paducah, the, sh- the yeah. shooting in Paducah, Kentucky that happened in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So similar type of a community, similar type of a situation. And, you know, in the 90s, they thought it never would happen here. And now here in 2018, they thought it would never happen there. But 
but they're actually sort of geographically quite close to a place that already had had a sh pretty, pretty tragic shooting. So right there is, is certainly a lesson to districts. Um, again, both of these events happened before school had actually started in situations where we had a, um, you know, a, a congregation of kids or, you know, a cluster of kids hanging out. Again, we see that to be quite true in many of the past events. Um, common areas, cafeterias, vestibules, courtyards are very common targets because you have a lot of people. Um, you typically have easy access to them when you enter the building or enter the facility. Um, and so again, that's very important. The other, I think, potential problem in these sort of common areas or these large, you know, where you have lots of kids waiting around before school, um, is there is typically a, a very uh, poor supervision. Um, not a whole lot of folks there to assist in any kind of response or to be able to preventively pick up on what might be getting ready to happen. Which is a concern for events uh, less serious than an active shooter event. You know, a big fight, uh, you know, an assault, and, you know, other, you know, other school-based violence when you have a lot of kids or even just accidents. You know, you have a lot of kids in an enclosed area and poor supervision. It, there's the, the potential for, you know, different types of danger you know, accidental or more violent, you know, increases quite a bit. Yeah, and, and you can kind of go back and look at, you know, pick a shooting, and a lot of them have that in common where it is this sort of um, common area where you have a significant number of kids. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, you have a little bit of divergence in that there is some uncertainty of whether specific people were targeted. Um, it always sort of, that's always takes a while to establish. Is that in both or are you speaking um, in, just in the in Kentucky In the one, one in Kentucky, okay. there is a, a very strong feeling that it was purely random targets, which okay. is typically what we see. Yeah. Um, the one in Texas, uh, they seem to be unable to determine that exactly whether there was a particular target or whether it was just pretty random. Mm. Um, but that random... Um, we're not looking for an individual, and even in certain shootings like the one in, in Arapahoe, at Arapahoe High School in Colorado, the person may have gone in thinking they were looking for a particular individual, but the shooting can very quickly become random. So um, I, I think that it's a fallacy to say, well, they haven't really said anyone specific, so maybe there isn't really going to be a threat, you know, because right. they didn't say anyone in particular. So I think that's another commonality that we see. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, Arapahoe, that that person had a specific target in mind, and the fatality in that shooting was a different person who mm -hmm. was just in the wrong place at the wrong place at the wrong time. And we saw that in the shooting this year, or I guess in 2017, in California, um, in that elementary school, that person was going for a specific person, and, and there were other, you know, bystanders. There was the person where the guy was estranged from his wife, who was a teacher Bakersfield. in Bakersfield, and he went in looking for her specifically, and other people, you know, were, were injured, caught in the crossfire. Were caught in the crossfire. Crossfire. And so it cuts both ways. Either, you know, I'm going in for a specific person and then I sort of decide, okay, I'm now I'm just striking back at this school in general, or I really am only trying to get this person, but other people are caught in the crossfire. The, the other thing that's always interesting in these that you see is sort of a commonality is the description of the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. um, in the one in Kentucky, um, there at least the preliminary descriptions, nothing notable, quiet, seemed mm -hmm. to be a nice enough kid, 
Um, but yet there is always this element of sort of invisibility. Like, I don't really even remember, I don't really know him, that this individual is considered or is perceived to be insignificant or perceives himself to be insignificant. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the descriptions of other individuals that know him sort of tend to fall into that category hmm. or into the extreme other category where, yeah, this person was scary. They were doing all these things. They were saying all these things. They were showing us the weapon. Um, and so you really have two sides of that coin. In, in the Kentucky one, you have like many of the previous perpetrators where no one really realized that they were a problem or that they had issues, that there was anything going on because it was all very quiet and insignificant the surface, yeah. and then the one in texas appears to have had more issues with aggressive behavior mm -hmm. um there's reports unsubstantiated of throwing things or throwing furniture around in the school at, at mm -hmm. one particular instance acting very aggressively towards someone in another and again both students these are both students both students perpetrators. both um similar age um, you know, and going back to Arapaho, in that particular case, there were a number of indicators that there were issues or aggressive sort of behavior in mm -hmm. school, where we can go to other ones in Paducah, for, for example, where there wasn't really anything that was a particular indicator. And so I guess the, the takeaway there is there isn't a profile. There isn't, there isn't profile. oh, yeah. this person said this or looked like this or acted in this way. Therefore, I can automatically draw a line between A and B. Mm -hmm. And it's just not that simple. It's much more nuanced. Well, and I think it's important to note that there's not a simple profile, but that doesn't mean that be behavior-based threat assessment and management can't work to prevent some of this stuff so you can't say oh well they wore a trench coat therefore shooter but we can go they were engaging in these types of behavior they were saying these sorts of things they were making these sorts of threats um, and and those things can be an indicator from a threat assessment and management standpoint to work to prevent violence but what you're saying it sounds like is that there's not a simple profile well and i think not like a checklist well i profile. think what you have to keep in mind too is it's so early in the investigation True. and what we see in other ones is it starts out it's like an onion it starts out where everyone says oh well you know i don't think you ever had any problems he seemed mm -hmm. really quiet and significant and then you peel back the layers and then you find the disturbing video that was made or yeah. the manifesto that was sent or you know so on the i think it's much more a function of a superficial appearance mm of everything being fine versus what we find when you really begin the investigation, which speaks very significantly to the need for threat assessment, to not just look at the superficial appearance, but to be able to investigate from a variety of different perspectives what's happening with that individual. So I think as much as those two seem dichotomous, I think they're kind of a similar yeah. actual sort of situation. Mm -hmm. And what it always bears repeating when we talk about threat assessment, you know, threat assessment, we sometimes talk about it in the in the scope of active shooter, per trying to, you know, pick up on active shooters, but threat assessment is a valuable tool for anyone who is at risk for violence against themselves or others. So that could be self-harm, it could be abusive dating relationships, it can be assault, any sort of lower level violence too. And so I think it's always good for us to repeat that whenever we talk about threat assessment. Yeah, so those are sort of the textbook elements. The thing that's a little bit unusual in both of these is that the perpetrator was taken into custody. That does not typically happen. I mean, it happens in some, clearly. 
but in the past you've seen a more, much more significant percentage where the the shooter takes his own life where there isn't or is that's the most common or is somehow neutralized by police but it's interesting that both of these individuals were taken into custody not by the police but by individuals on scene hmm. um, staff members who restrained them staff members who somehow kept them there now they didn't give up there's not uh, an indication that they turned no, themselves it, like it appears stopped. that they were both attempting to flee which is again kind of unusual yeah. we don't always see that i think tj lane fled mm-hmm. but that's not really the only one i can the shooter in chardon ohio a number of years ago but that's the only one i can think off the top of my head where they fled and again very early on as the invest- investigation progresses we may very well find that there was some circumstance mm. that they you know, encountered someone who restrained them as opposed to someone went after them, you know, in pursuit. And it sounds in in particular in the one in um, the one in Kentucky that he sort of encountered a staff member or someone that Mm. that um, stopped him. Um, So that's a little bit atypical. Yeah. Um, The one thing that I do want to kind of touch on very briefly is the commonality of the chaos of the scene mm-hmm. and the notion that in both of these people were self-evacuating. Now, we don't know what level of training any of these events had or whether they had run-hide-fight training or whatever the students may or may not have had, but clearly that instinct to flee was very strong mm-hmm. in both of these because yep. they both, you know, both of them descri- described the chaos of people literally running from the scene, not just I ran into a classroom and shut the door, but running to businesses, mm-hmm. you know, half a mile away. Weren't there trampling um, injuries in There were one, four or five trampling in the Kentucky one. In the Kentucky one, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting to read some of the accounts where one individual ran, a, was a mile away, had run a mile Yikes. from the school and to a business that had been pulling kids in and was sheltering the kids in the business. Oh. And so this idea that kids will automatically walk back into the classroom and close the door is just not true. True, not anymore at least. The one in Texas that's particularly alarming is it was a, apparently a number of individuals that took off in their cars. We can only imagine how dangerous that yeah. is to yeah. have hundreds and hundreds of kids piling in their car and taking off in, in an absolute panic. Yeah. That's, that is potentially as dangerous as the event that they just left. Yeah. So this idea that, well, kids aren't going to flee, they, they absolutely will. Right. So there and these needs were both to in be, high schools. Yeah, both, both in, these high schools. in high schools. And so there needs to be some preparation and consideration given into what kind of instructions, what kind of training are we giving these kids because they are going to have to, especially, in many cases, well, run for their lives. Well, especially at the middle school and the high school. I mean, I think you you probably will see less self-evacuation at the elementary primary mm-hmm. level, but by the time you have, you know, 17-year-olds, they're, they're going to be self-evacuating. They're going to be running for their lives. And so we can't pretend that, well, we're going to have a lockdown and we'll be able to account for everyone because they'll all stick their green cards underneath the thing. Yeah. That, realistically, that's not going to happen. Lockdown was not a function in any of these. Yeah. And again, both of these have the commonality of law enforcement arrived on scene after it was over, not was because over. they were not doing the best they could, but just because of the sheer quickness. Both mm-hmm. of these were very quick events mm-hmm. that still managed to inflict a significant amount of damage. Yeah. So I think the takeaway there is a plan, a plan, training. You know, We can't just go, well, this will never happen. And if it does, the kids will go in their classrooms and hide under their desks because the they will, won't. And the cops, and the cops will show up and take care of us because none of those things yeah. are in any way accurate. And these two events really typified that and illustrated that yeah. very, very clearly. Yeah. Uh, I want to close with the idea that we had two days and two shootings. Mm -hmm. But the other takeaway that I think is important is while these two events were happening, 
there were schools throughout the United States that had numerous threats, bomb threats, shooting threats, Mm -hmm. all kinds of threats happening every single day that were going on at that same moment. And so it's kind of interesting to see, you know, how closely aligned those things are, how what a a fine line, a razor's edge between this was a, a threat and some of them are clearly not significant threats, but you know, the the razor's edge between a threat and an actual event. And either one of these events had a threat pre- preceding them. At least not that has come to yeah. at least not that has come to light. And, and again, it's but we so typically early don't but we typically that. don't see that. You know, we typically don't see, you know, even in, in bomb detonations or in, in past school shootings where there was there was threatening behaviors, certainly, but where there was an overt threat where someone called in, you and know, says, I'm, I'm gonna do this tomorrow. I'm gonna do this. You know, I, I don't yeah. think we've seen any of those. But we know there is planning and preparation. It's just sure. not divulged in the same way. Sure. And so I think you know, we have schools that are constantly saying, oh, well, I'm just going to you know, figure out how to deal with this threat and never flipping the switch to go, what am I going to do when this threat becomes an incident? Mm-hmm. And I think that may be the other takeaway. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that, you know, if the way that we handle an actual incident, uh, we ha- if we aren't prepared and we haven't planned for an actual incident, whether it's a detonation of a bomb or a shooting in a school, that can have really, really costly, you know, tragic consequences. But it is also important to keep in mind that if we handle threats poorly, there's a cost too. They're probably not going to be deadly costs, but there is a cost to our students when if, you know, in some of the places where we you know do research and you see in one county, you know, in one school district where they're having threat after threat after threat, there is a cost to our kids. Um, mm-hmm. If we're not handling those, you know, appropriately and we're, and, and it's maybe not death, um, but we need to take those seriously and be prepared, you know, for to handle those well. It's important for us to, to take these these considerations and really start thinking about, you know, how do we get past the denial phase? Yeah. And all of the research that we talk about, um, you can find on our website. We do research into school-based violent threats and incidents. Um, You also can refer to the BATS data. Um, The reason that we do the research is because neither one of those is actually super accurate. You know, the BATS data is completely uh, self-reported. So if there's a threat and someone at the school district or, you know, law enforcement in the area doesn't feel like reporting it, it doesn't get reported, it doesn't get counted. So, you know, the research that we do is really to try to be really all-encompassing and to get a real accurate picture of what schools are facing. And so you can find our States of Concern report, which talks about school-based violent threats and incidents, including school shooting threats and unspecified threats and bomb threats. And then we also have research specifically just about school-based bomb threats and incidents. And you can find all of those on our website. If you have other questions or anything that we can do to help, you can always reach us at our website, which is www.eschoolsafety.org. And the email address, if you need to get in touch, is info at eschoolsafety.org. If you like this podcast, please do send it on to your colleagues who might find value in it. You can rate, review, and subscribe. That really helps us get in front of more folks who are like-minded and interested. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, iTunes, Stitcher, Pandora, all those places. And if you're looking for something a little bit less serious and a little more lighthearted, but still about school safety, you can check out our other podcast, The School Safety Free Period. So there you have it. Thanks.